Praise the Lord. Let's uh, pray at the beginning of tonight's session, shall we? Father, we do thank you. It's the blood of Jesus that sets us free. And we thank you indeed that we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. And Father, we thank you for the wonderful joy of the Holy Spirit and the peace of the Holy Spirit that you shower upon us. Oh, Father, I'm so grateful tonight for all the bounty that you've given to us because we're yours. Father, thank you we've freely received and we want to freely give it to all that we meet. Father, that people might know that there is a wonderful Father in heaven who reigns over all. Father, I thank you for Jesus, that he was the one who came, laid down his life, that we might be free. I thank you that he gave of his own soul he poured his soul out unto death that we should know joy. And Father, tonight we just thank you for him. We bless his name forevermore because he's such a wonderful Savior. And Father, tonight I thank you too that he is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. And tonight, Father, we just pray that the words that I speak might be the source of such freedom and liberty to so many Father, that people should know the empowering of the Holy Spirit upon their lives, even through tonight, after tonight, and in the future as they listen to the tapes, and so on. Oh, Father, we ask that every time these are played, that, Father, people should know the move of the Holy Spirit within their own lives. Father, just come and speak to us in the way that you alone speak, straight to our hearts, Lord. And, Father, may we be confirmed in our faith, and, Father, may we be empowered for service and for witness. Father, come and do as you please tonight, that Jesus may be glorified. In the name of Jesus, I ask it. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lovely. Well, I trust that you've been uh, mightily blessed since the last Bible study that we had together. Let me tell you what I'm doing. Because I've heard a lot of Non nonsense things spoken about the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, instead of just doing one session on the Holy Spirit, I decided that I would actually have two sessions covering the whole doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And last time, I tried to clear up a lot of the background issues, you know, the things that people have been very confused about, so that we could have a firm foundation on which tonight could be based. Do you remember last time that I spoke about the Holy Spirit, first of all, as a person, right? The Holy Spirit is not an it, he's a he, lovely, and it means that if you've got the Holy Spirit within you, you've got someone who loves you, who cares for you, who really understands you. And we saw in passing also that he is divine, that he is God, co-equal with the Father and with the Son. And then I just went on rather quickly to inform you of some of the work that the Holy Spirit does to every person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are actually 36 things that happen to you the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I didn't have time last time to outline them all, but what I did do was give you a little mnemonic. Do you remember what a mnemonic is? It's an aid to memory, so that you would at least know the four or five things that the Holy Spirit does which are the most fundamental. Do you remember the mnemonic was ribs plus? Do you remember that? You should remember it. Otherwise, I'll have to give you a mnemonic to help you remember the mnemonic. But ribs plus sums up the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And R-I-B-S plus is all you need to remember. The R stands for regeneration. That is, you are born again by the Holy Spirit. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes along, and suddenly you have a Father in heaven. You're born into a brand new family. Born again. Your spirit comes back to life and, and all the other things that happen. You're reborn or regenerated there. I, every person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it's a nonsense thing for any person to say that there are certain Christians around who are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. By definition, if uh, you are one of the Lord's children, you have the Spirit of God within you. And we saw that in Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 9. The B stands for baptism. Now, at the point you are converted, at the point you're saved, 
the Holy Spirit takes you and he baptizes you into the body of Jesus Christ. And every person who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ is an integral member of the body. No matter whether they're a weak Christian or a strong Christian, no matter whether they're a carnal or a spiritual Christian, if they are truly born again, they're a member of the body of Christ. And you can read that for yourself in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, where it says, By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Now that's what the B stands for. The S stands for sealed. All right? The Holy Spirit comes along and he then seals you. Now I love this sealing of the Holy Spirit. We read about it a lot in the, in the New Testament. But in the ancient world, a seal had a certain meaning, you know? To show that something was yours, you used to put a seal on it. I think some of the police still do, don't they? If they have to give uh, a wit uh, stand as a witnessing uh, court and they actually have certain items they want to bring up, they put a mark on it, you know, and they say, is this the case? Yes, how do you know? It's got my mark on it. And they put their seal on it. That belongs to me. That is the thing that I'm talking about, you see. And the lovely thing for us is that the Holy Spirit is our seal. And that means that all the spiritual forces in the universe know that we belong to God because the Holy Spirit's within us. Isn't that good news? And when the devil comes along to you and tries to convince you you're not one of the lords, he knows full well you're one of the lords. He's looking at the seal face to face, you see. A seal also did something else. It meant security. And uh, the letters that the king used to send were sealed with some wax. Do you remember he put his imprint into the wax? And as long as that was unbroken, that meant that no one had tampered with it. And for us, the Holy Spirit means that we are secure in our faith. And do you know, by the way, the fact that you, once you're born again, are really going to reach heaven and you're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, do you know that that is true because the whole Godhead is actually fighting for you and working for you in that. And the Holy Spirit has his part to play. He seals you for the day of redemption, which is lovely. Plus, why have I added that? To remind you that there are other things that the Holy Spirit does, but also to remind you he also gives you a gift. In fact, perhaps not just one gift, many gifts. And in the next few Bible studies, we'll be speaking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how to move in those gifts. Now, that's a nice little mnemonic to remember. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. I also then did an analysis, if you remember, of John chapter 20, and we saw that on the very day that Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and returned with the Holy Spirit. And if that confuses you, it's because you weren't here last time, and I suggest you get the last tape. But on the evening of the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples, and do you remember what he says? He, he breathed upon them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Aorist tense in the Greek, aorist imperative, means receive it now. And so they did. And we saw last time that that was the moment when the Holy Spirit came into the the human arena, and started indwelling all those who believed on the name of Jesus. All right? So that's John 20. But then we ended last time by actually seeing that even though they were already indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 40 days later, a 40-day period in which Jesus had appeared on the earth, 40 days later, Jesus then gives them the command, don't leave Jerusalem, until you are endued with power from on high. And the point that I made was this, that in fact, that was said to people who were already born again, who were already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so I think it's best if we now turn back to the passage that we read last time, and that's Luke chapter 24. Lucas 24. And let's just read it together. <clears throat> it's lovely that the Lord, when he was with them, opened up the scriptures to them. Isn't that lovely? Whenever you have the presence of Jesus with you, the scriptures get opened up. And then it says in verse 49, now here is his command. All right, this is Luke 24, verse 49. And behold, he says, I send the promise of my Father upon you, 
But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And the word endued there means to be clothed with power. Don't leave Jerusalem. Don't start fulfilling the mandate that I've given you until you receive this empowering, which is called here the promise of the Father. Now, apparently, the Father promised that he would send the Holy Spirit like this. In the Old Testament is where the Father made the promise. It's in the passage that I dealt with before on some of my tapes, but in Joel chapter 2. And you remember there that God promises that the day would come when his Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. Do you remember that? Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men are going to see, see visions. Do you remember the prophecy that I'm talking about? And that is what is meant by the promise of the Father. Now, I want to have a quick look at that, although I have dealt with it on my uh, tape, I think, what really happened on the day of Pentecost. But I want to go to the Gospels and have a look. And I want to go to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 3 to see some of the words of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. Now remember, don't take scriptures out of context. There's one scripture here that is quoted by charismatics and quoted, 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 and yet they never seem to see it in the context. What is the context of this? John the Baptist is giving a message warning about judgment. Judgment is the subject of this message, right? And look what he says, and he's the forerunner of the Messiah. Verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious crowd, in other words, come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's judgment. There's wrath coming. You are going to be involved in that wrath, and you're coming to me to try and escape it, and so he says to them this, bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. Start acting as though you're in the realm of repentance before you come to be baptized in this realm. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And the Jews in those days were trusting that just because they were descendants of Abraham, they were all right as far as God is concerned. It didn't matter what they did, it didn't matter what they thought, it didn't matter what they believed. It was the fact that they were physically related to Abraham that made all the difference. And John says, forget that idea. God can raise up children of Abraham out of these stones. Right? It's got to be something deeper than that. And then it says this, and verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12 are dealing with judgment. Look what it says. And now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees. There are trees growing, but the time for cutting them down has come, he says. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And notice the use of the word fire here, right? This is a fire of judgment. You're not bringing forth the good works. You will be thrown into the fire. That's judgment. Fire is also used in the next verse and in the next verse. Now, let's read the next verse. In verse 11, this is the one that's always quoted by charismatics. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me, says John, is mightier than I, a reference to Jesus, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And in case you forget its judgment, read straight on, whose fan, that's whose grain shovel, is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, this is a statement that when Jesus comes, he's going to be the judge. And remember this, that John had a slightly wrong idea about the events that were going to occur. John thought that the way the future lay was this, that he would carry on preaching. One day the Messiah would come and he would introduce him. The Messiah then would preach for a little time. Then there'd be a judgment with the separation of the believers and the unbelievers. The wheat and the chaff, as he goes on to say. 
we would say the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. Okay? And that at that judgment, the unbelievers will be removed and will be baptized into fire, the lake of fire. That's their end. But those who are believers will actually be gathered into the barn. That's the kingdom of God. And there, he says, they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And remember, that day is still coming. Now, John got the timing a little bit wrong because he didn't understand about the first coming of Jesus, that Jesus was going to be rejected, that Jesus would suffer on the cross. He didn't know anything about the church that was coming. And he thought the second advent was going to be the first advent. Well, it wasn't, but I have news for you all. The second advent is still coming. Praise the Lord. Jesus is coming again. And on that day, these words of John the Baptist will be fulfilled. And the unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire. The believers, however, will go through into the kingdom of God, the physical manifestation of the kingdom of God on this earth. And on that day, every one of them is going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what Joel 2 is talking about. All flesh is going to receive it. Praise the Lord. Now, do you see the context here? Now, notice very clearly, the baptism of the Spirit here has nothing to do with their salvation. They are baptized in the Holy Spirit because they are already saved. They're saved, judged, and they go straight through into the kingdom. Once they're in the kingdom, they receive the empowering with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's what's called the promise of the Father. What John didn't know, and what we now know, is this. That between his time and then, there was going to be this wonderful thing called the church coming onto the earth. And the news for us, and this is what we learn from the book of Acts, is that this empowering, this endowment with power by the Holy Spirit is not just for the future kingdom. It's available too for people who are in the church. Isn't that wonderful? In fact, if you keep your finger in the place here, you'll actually find it's one of the ways a Christian is defined. If you go to Hebrews chapter 6, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 6, and if you find it difficult, I've dealt with it on my eternal security tape, number 3, right? I just passed that on. I don't have time tonight to go through it again. But here you have a definition of a Christian in verse 4. Now, he's talking about restoration to repentance, not to salvation here, right? But here it says, it's impossible for those. Now, those there are Christians. And here it says, who were once enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come. Now, can you see, in verse 5 of Hebrews 6, you have this phrase that there, is, there are powers available for the age to come, but we Christians actually can partake of them now. Now, this is a reference to that endowment with power that is theirs to be had, but which is also ours to be had. It's rather good news. Praise the Lord. This is not to do with salvation. This is something that is available for those who are saved. They get through the judgment first. Then they're baptized in the Holy Spirit on that particular day. And by the way, these two stages can be seen on several occasions. For example, in the life of Jesus, you'll find two stages. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived Jesus. He was born by the Holy Ghost. And yet, notice this, for the first 30 years of his life, Jesus didn't minister. There's no reference to his having ministered at all. He certainly, at the age of 12, went into the temple and started discussing things with PhDs in the temple. But he didn't start ministry. He lived a life as a carpenter. When did his ministry begin? His ministry began at the baptism of John. And what else happened at the baptism of John? Why, I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit came upon him. In fact, if you go back to Matthew chapter 3, I did see, say keep your finger in the place. You'll see that if you go down to um, verse 13, the baptism of Jesus. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. 
comest thou to me? Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Conceived and born by the Holy Ghost, and yet his ministry begins when he's empowered with the Holy Spirit from on high at this particular point. You see the same two stages as we saw last time in the life of the disciples, right? In John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on them and says, Receive, and they receive. Fifty days later on the day of Pentecost, as we're going to read, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And their ministry begins from that time on. And by the way, what a difference this empowerment made to them. Here they were, weak, weedy uh, believers, they were frightened, they were timid, and suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they're standing up preaching to the multitude. Oh, really, something quite dynamic. Their ministry began from that time on, you see. Now, this is the endowment with power that we are speaking about tonight. And we have to go, of course, to the book of Acts. But before we go there, I just want to say this. I don't care what you call this endowment with power as long as you know what you're talking about. You can call it baptism in the Holy Spirit, baptism with the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. I really don't mind as long as you make it clear that the thing you are talking about is the endowment with power, such as happened on the day of Pentecost. Notice, the, notice this. When you're born again, the Holy Spirit baptizes. It's the Holy Spirit that takes you and plunges you into the body of Jesus. When you're endued with power, it's Jesus who does the baptizing. Notice, for example, in verse uh, 11, he says, The one who comes after me, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus now who baptizes and he baptizes us into, if you want, or with the Holy Spirit. Lovely. There it is. And baptism, of course, means you're plunged into the Holy Spirit. Rather nice. Praise the Lord. When the Holy Spirit comes to indwell, he comes and fills you up. When you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're actually plunged into the Holy Spirit and there's plenty of power around for the ministry that you have, and for the service. Now, that's the difference between those two. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 1, shall we? And you'll find it says exactly the same as Luke 24. But it gets us into the book of Acts, so let's have a look at this. Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 4. Here it is, the baptism of the Holy Spirit talked about, the endowment with power from, from on high, the promise of the Father, the power for service, whatever you want to call it. Verse 4, and being assembled together with them, this is 40 days after he rose from the dead, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. This is an event that's still future, he says. But remember, 40 days before, they'd already received the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Oh Lord, have we got it slightly wrong? Is it now that the kingdom comes? Jesus said, forget all that for the minute, right? Don't talk about that. He says, unto them, it is not for you to know the times nor the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Sumeria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And he's talking about the event which occurred ten days later, 
which is related in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, which is the day of Pentecost, is not the birth of the church. The church was born in Acts 20. Why the church is already in existence at this particular point? They're functioning as a church. Do you remember one of the things that happens in Acts chapter 1 is that they elect a person to replace Judas. There's controversy over whether they should have done it like that. But they were still functioning as a church at that particular point. Oh no, the church was already here. It's the empowering for service that has yet to come. So, let's have a look at Acts and chapter 2. <clears throat> and this is lovely. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, who was all, who is the all there? How many of them were there? Who, who did they they consist of. Well, actually, in Acts chapter 1, you've got it. Verse 13 of Acts 1. This is the all referred to here. Acts 1, 13. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, uh, Zelots, and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Now, isn't that lovely? The brothers of Jesus are there, the mother of Jesus is there, the women are there, and if you read on, and in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120. So we're talking about 120 people who were there in the upper room and they were all gathered with one accord. Remember that 120. It's very significant number. Very significant. Let's read on. Verse 2 of Acts 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. They, they weren't fire. They were like fire. They looked like fire. And it sat upon each of them. It does remind you, of course, of the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. Have no objection to that. But that's not what the fire is here. Do you know what the fire is here? The key is given in the number 120. And if you know your Bible really well and in detail, you'll remember another time when there were 120 gathered together and when something that looked like fire actually filled the place where they were. What, what thing am I referring to? Why? I'm referring to the dedication of Solomon's temple. For in the dedication of Solomon's temple, there were 120 priests gathered together and the Shekinah glory came down and filled the place where they were. And this fire here simply announces that the church now is the temple of the Holy Ghost. This is the replacement of the, the uh, building that was used up to this time. And there it is. That's what these tongues that look as though they're fire is. It's the Shekinah glory appearing in the midst of the disciples. Hallelujah. How wonderful. I've seen the Shekinah glory with my own eyes. And it's a light much better than this glaring thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful light. Terribly strong, but so wonderful. And I was once um, in a prayer meeting when suddenly the whole room was absolutely filled with light. And it was the Shekinah glory appearing. Well, I say I saw it with my own eyes. I couldn't open my eyes. I just couldn't. And when I did, the whole thing vanished. You know, but there were several of us in the room who are all alive today and are witnesses of that particular thing. That's what they saw. And these tongues of fire came down, settled upon each one of them. This is significant. You see, in 1 Corinthians um, 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, you have the church described as a temple. In 1 Corinthians 6, it is your body that is the temple. And so there was a tongue of fire over each one of them. In 1 Corinthians 3, it is the collective group that is the temple of God. And he warns anyone who destroys this temple, meaning the church, is in great danger. Now, that's what you've got at this particular point, all right? This is not a fulfillment of being baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's not. That is a judgment, the fire baptism there. All right, then we move on. And it sat upon each of them, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. 
Isn't that lovely? They've already received it from the hand of Jesus. But here they're filled and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And these were real languages. And next time I'll be talking about tongues and those who are chronic seekers. Come along next time. You'll really understand how to receive the gift of tongues and so on. All right. But do you see, this was that which occurred 50 days after these people were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the fact that this is not salvation, some people will say this is when they were saved. It can't be, you know. And there's a lovely proof of this. If you actually go along to Acts 4, you'll find the same group are filled again. Now, if it's salvation, what, are they born again again? Or what is it? No, no, it can't be. In Acts chapter 4, there has been uh, persecution against the church. They're trying to shut them up. And they, of course, get together and pray and they say, Lord, make us more bold. Give us more power than we had before. Great stuff. Have you ever prayed that? Lord, give me more power than I've got. Wonderful. I'd recommend it highly every morning for all of you. And look what happened, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. Now this is the same group that met in Acts 20 plus the converts. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And it reminds us of this. It's no good saying, well, I've been, full, I've been filled by the Holy Spirit. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Listen, every day of your life you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The first, one of the first things you should ask in the morning is, Lord, fill me again with your Spirit. Otherwise you're like a cranky old car that's trying to run without oil in the wheels. You've got to do it daily. And Ephesians 5.18, where it's translated, be filled with the Spirit, actually says, keep on being filled with the Spirit. Daily. Keep on and on and on and on and on being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you don't, you'll find the Christian life very tough and very difficult. D.L. Moody expressed it like this. He said, well, I, I have been filled, he said, but I'm a very leaky vessel. You see, and some of the filling sort of spills out, and so every morning I've got to be topped up. And so you have. All right? Okay, now can you see, this empowering occurred to those who were already born again. And that's what we're going to see right through the book of Acts. I think we should go on a tour of the book of Acts and have a look at these. Let's go on to the next one, shall we, in Acts 8, where we meet Philip. Acts 8, where we meet Philip. And Philip is in Samaria, and he's having a revival. Wonderful. This is before he meets his Ethiopian, right? And the revival is wonderful. Now, verse 12. And when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, were they converted, these people? Well, of course they were converted. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. These people believed and they were baptized in water. Very definitely. If they weren't converted, he's guilty of baptizing unbelievers in water. You get into the most dreadful theological mess if you're not careful. Notice then verse 13. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Verse 14. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them. This endowment with power had not occurred at that time. So Peter and John are sent to lay hands on these baptized believers that they might receive this power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16 again, For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is water baptism. That is the form of water baptism found in the book of Acts. Right? And that's the only uh, form of baptism that they'd known, so they needed now to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And something happened. How do we know something happened? Well, when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. 
he saw something occur. And I believe that, that what they saw was this. They began to speak with tongues. They began to prophesy at that particular point. All right, let's go on to the next one, Acts 9. Here you've got the testimony of, of Paul, or Saul, as he was formerly known. And you'll remember he was converted on the road to Damascus. He saw the Lord, and that was it. Now he goes as a blind man. And Ananias is sent to minister to him. And Ananias argues a bit with the Lord, says, look, I've heard terrible things of this chap. You ask me to walk into a trap? What is it? And the Lord says, look, I've got such a ministry for this fellow. If you only knew Ananias, which is a rough translation from the Greek, if you only knew what's ahead for this particular man, you'd be amazed. And look, look at this, verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Lovely that. To the Gentiles, yes. To kings, yes. But also to the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way, entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And that's it. This converted brother Saul then received this wonderful filling of the Holy Spirit. And he says later on, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Isn't that lovely? All right, there you've got it. Uh, go on to Acts 10. Now here you've got a slightly different case. Up to this time, the apostles believed that only Jews were included in the church. And God had to persuade them that the Gentiles were in as well. Now that was a pretty tough thing to do. So the Lord decided to give visions to help. He gave a vision, of course, to Cornelius and told him, look, go and send to Joppa. There's a chap called Peter there. You've got to talk to him. Right? He also gave then a vision, do you remember, to Peter, who saw this vast tablecloth filled with every type of animal. And Peter says, the Lord said to him, go and eat. He said, Lord, I won't eat. I've never eaten anything unclean. The Lord says, how dare you call that which I have cleansed unclean. And that was actually a reference to the Gentiles. Look, the Gentiles now are going to be included in my great purpose. And Peter, who uh, needed to be convinced, stands up and tells them about Jesus. And God then takes over. And in verse 44 of Acts chapter 10, the Lord does something wonderful. Now, these Jews needed this to occur, that they were persuaded that the Gentiles were included. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. Look at that, they, were, they couldn't believe it. This happened to Gentiles, the dogs. I can't believe it, you know. I mean, I remember some Pentecostals who couldn't believe that Anglicans were being filled with the Holy Spirit. What? They were astonished when they heard. Baptists? What? Today, I know some fellowship people who are amazed that Pentecostals are still being filled with the Holy Spirit. Amazing. But God will do it. Isn't that wonderful? They were astonished. As many, for as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that, have, that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. That's water baptism again. They prayed, uh, then prayed they him to, to tarry certain days. Now, this was necessary to convince them of what God was doing. Now, here, they just listen to the message and suddenly the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Isn't it good news? The order, you see, up to this point was this. And some people like God to be nicely regimented, right? The Jews repented. Repent means to rethink. They had certain ideas about the Messiah. They had to change their ideas. So the Jews repented con concerning the Messiah. They were then baptized in water. They were then baptized with the Holy Spirit. Right? Gentiles believe, of course, because they haven't got any ideas about the Messiah. They hear about the Messiah and suddenly say, oh, yes, 
and they believe. Super. Here, however, before they're baptized, the Holy Spirit falls upon them, which is lovely. And this is the thing that's going to convince the church that the Gentiles are in. For example, in Acts 11, Peter goes and reports to the church, and in verse 15, this is what he says, and it convinces them all. And as I began to speak, he says, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. It doesn't say, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire. He loses the fire at this point, has no relevance to this particular situation. Do notice these uh, things that are missed out. This is very accurate. The Bible is always this accurate. He remembered the words that were spoken by John, uh, by the Lord, in reference to, to John here, you see. How that he said, John indeed baptized with water. But Jesus said, but you will be baptized with the Holy, Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he gave unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? They all heartily agree. Just. Right? There's a bit of trouble after this, but generally they agree. All right, another one. If you go to Acts 19 now. All right, Acts 19. And here we see another group of people. Now, these are uninformed, but they are disciples. You've got to ask yourself this question, can a disciple be an unbeliever? The answer is, it's ridiculous. Of course a disciple can't be an unbeliever. A disciple has to be a believer, right? You know that, that every disciple is a believer. Oh, that it were true the other way round, that every believer was a disciple. That's not true. Most believers are not disciples. This is how they will know that you are my disciple, says the Lord, that you have love for one another. He doesn't say this is how they will know you're a believer. It's only the disciples who love with the love of the Lord because the disciple wants to be like his master, you see. Now, these people were disciples. They're definitely born again. And notice what happens, verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. This is totally ignorance. Do you know why they've missed this? They've been too busy out on the road teaching, preaching. Definitely. And he comes along, and this is the chap who's going to tell them about everything. And then he says this, verse 3, and he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? They said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, and here's the message of John, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, <clears throat> saying unto the people, that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's water baptism. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. And as you go through the book of Acts, what do you see? that this endowment with power comes upon Jews. It comes upon Samaritans. It comes upon Romans. It comes upon Greeks. But all of them are already born again. And they are then endued with power at this particular point. And I believe this endowment is available and necessary for us to live an effective Christian life, especially in this evil and dark world. I believe it's available for everyone to receive. Don't think, by the way, it's the answer to every problem. Some problems begin when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Why? Simply because the warfare becomes more intense. The warfare becomes more real. After all, you'll notice with Jesus, when the Holy Spirit came upon him and empowered him, the first thing that happened, he was led into the wilderness. Nevertheless, I believe that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is a gateway into a brand new realm. That's what I found in my own life. When I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, I found suddenly prayer was much more effective. I found the things of God far more real. I found the person of Christ much more real. I found the love of Jesus just overwhelming and flowing. 
And it's this enjoyment with power that the Lord wants all his people to receive and accept and experience. And that's why we're meeting tonight. All right, how do you receive him then? How do you receive this empowering with the Holy Spirit? Well, I think there are a number of, of ways in which you can receive. First of all, I'm finding more and more people, like the house of Cornelius, receiving the endowment with power at the point of salvation. Have you noticed that? I've known many, many people, they give their hearts to Christ. And they're, they're already absolutely baptized in the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit just comes upon them. And some of these, by the way, I've known, actually then start seeking for the endowment with power. And they go to a minister and the chap looks at them and says, you've already been endued with power. I know that you have. And they say, oh, well, I thought I had been, you know. And, and yeah, well, of course, I've been speaking with tongues for a week or, or two. And they start talking like this. This is happening more and more and more. I find those who are converted in our meetings tend to be baptized in the Holy Spirit the moment they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in the meeting. And I think that's the way it should be. God's moving fast, you know. And I think if a person is open to God and really wants to receive, they'll get the package all in one deal. And why not? You know, this marvelous package deal straight from God. Sometimes, however, it occurs sometime later. And sometimes the person can be in a meeting, they can be by themselves, they can be praying, whatever it is, and suddenly the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Again, I know lots and lots of people who are just sitting up in bed reading their Bible. And suddenly, whoa, that, they just knew the Holy Spirit came upon them. Right? They perhaps didn't speak with tongues immediately. It's immaterial. They just began. And I've known lots of people who've, who've actually rung me up and said, Roger, something strange happened to me. Last night I was just praying. Something strange, can I come and talk to you? And then they describe it and I say, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Oh, how wonderful, they say. Well, that's lovely. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them. I love that phrase, to fall upon. It reminds me of the father of the prodigal son. Do you remember? And the prodigal son came back. He was going to apologize to his dad and everything. His father saw him a long way off, ran out to greet him, fell upon him. That's what it says. I love that. And he kissed him. Beautiful. And I think sometimes when you receive this endowment with power, one of the things you experience is just great peaceful love overwhelming you. You know? Don't be afraid about this. Some, the Lord knows exactly who you are. And sometimes it's just marvelous peace, wonderful joy, a wonderful flow of love that is just the little mark that you need. At other times, however, it takes someone to lay hands on the person who needs this endowment with power. And as we've read in the book of Acts, very often uh, the, the apostles came and they laid hands on these people and they received this endowment with power. And tonight we're going to give you the opportunity if you feel that you have a need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, to come forward and we're going to lay hands on you in the name of Jesus that you might receive. But listen, be open to God to do his own thing. The lovely thing about the Holy Spirit is you can't compartmentalize him. Some people did earlier this century, you know, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Anglicans. They were the first in Britain to receive it, right? But they started having tarrying meetings, you know. And they used to say, well, the Bible says, tarry in Jerusalem until you be in Jew. You see? So they used to have tarrying meetings and they used to wait for ten days or something like this until they were empowered. They forgot the Jerusalem bit. Never mind carry in Sunderland, you know, until uh, you're endued with power. Listen, they only had to tarry in those days because of God's timetable. In Acts 2 it says the day of Pentecost was fully come, and it's fully here. Isn't that lovely? Cornelius didn't have to tarry. Peter didn't say, well, let's have a tarrying meeting, folks. The Holy Spirit just fell upon him. Paul didn't have to tarry, and Ananias went and laid hands on him. You don't have to tarry, you see. Praise the Lord. Now that's these are some of the ways that you can actually receive the Holy Spirit. But I want to give four basic things that I hope will help you. The first thing, and this is for those of you who really feel that you need the baptism of the Spirit. First of all, you've got to know that Father wants to, gi to give you this baptism and that Jesus will baptize you. You've got to know that. And I think it would be helpful if we turn to the last major passage that I'm dealing with tonight, which is in Luke and chapter 11. In Luke 11, 
we have promises made in verse 9 to verse 13. And these are wonderful promises, and they're for you. In verse 9, look what it says of Luke chapter 11. And I say unto you, ask and it shall be given you. Isn't that good news? Ask, you're going to get it. Seek, you shall find. Knock, it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth. Every single person that asketh receiveth. Oh, if only we have faith in that little verse. If you ask, you receive. That's what the word of God says. And he that seeketh, findeth. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Don't be worried that you're going to get something rotten. Come on, father won't answer your prayer in a rotten way. You'll get what you ask for. That's what he's saying. Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more? I love this superlative. Of course he's going to give you the Holy Spirit. Good news. So the first thing is, know that the Godhead wants you to receive the baptism of the Spirit. The second thing, before you come, make sure your sins are forgiven. And that means you've confessed them to the Lord. It's as easy as confessing your sins to the Lord. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. God will not fill an unclean vessel. He won't. This does not mean that you have to have your life totally sorted out, that uh, you know there's no sin at all that's still affecting you or anything like that. Certainly not. For example, in verse 13, he admits that you're evil. Look what he says. If ye then being evil, there it is. But there's one thing having a problem with sin, it's another thing not having repented of that particular sin. And you must confess your sins to the Lord so that you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The third thing is, get your motives right. You're not receiving this endowment with power for you. You're receiving it for service, for witness, for the work that God has got for you to do. You must get this clear. And Luke 11 says it quite clearly. Go um, further back in Luke 11. I love this. Verse 5. He said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine is in his journey, in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, I, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, that means his constant knocking, because he keeps knocking at the door and won't go away, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Now let's get the position clear. Here are you, right? And you've got two friends. One's on a journey. You've had your tea. I mean, you've just had a bowl of Weetabix, you've retired to bed for the night. That's my nightcap, you see? And you've retired to bed. Now, you've got a friend who's come on a journey. He knocks at the door. He hasn't had any Weetabix. He hasn't had any food. He's hungry. And you go to the cupboard, and the cupboard's bare. You've got enough for yourself. You haven't got enough to give him. Now, there's your friend coming on a journey. Now, you go to another friend who has a vast supply of Weetabix, right? And you go and you knock on his door. Now, there are two friends here. One's got it, the other hasn't got it. Okay? And you haven't got it. So you go and notice you're not knocking at the door for you. You're not. You're knocking for the friend who's come to you in need. There's nothing like being busy in the ministry to make you realize how much you need this endowment with power. Hallelujah. And so you go to the friend. Now, notice this depends on your love of your friend. You see, if it's someone you don't love and they knock at your door and say, I'm starving. You say, well, I haven't got anything. Well, has your neighbor got anything? Well, I don't think I want to disturb them. Not really. Oh, please, would you? Well, I don't think I will. And if, you, if they force you, you go up and you knock ever so quietly at the door. Not, not, you come back and say, I'm sorry, they, I couldn't wake them up. 
Now what's it mean? You don't love them very much. If you really love them, and this is an emergency, they need it, you'll go next door and you'll knock. You'll wake the dead if necessary. Won't you? And you'll knock and you'll knock and you'll knock and you'll keep on knocking. We'd all do it in an emergency, wouldn't we? Now what this is saying is this. If you are urgent for the task that is before you, that you want to be able to have something to give to these people, listen, you'll go with that attitude to the Lord. And the Lord will meet you because of that attitude. Praise God. That's what's wrong. Don't come up and say, well, I'm in such a need myself. This is for your service, for your witness, for your ministry. And it basically depends on how much you love your neighbor and how much you love the work of the Lord. So come to the Lord. Lord, I've got all these people. They want feeding. I've got nothing to give them. Can I have from you? And the Lord will say, yes. Praise God. And he'll pour the Holy Spirit upon, upon you and you'll have ample for all that is necessary. So get your motives right. It's for the ministry. And the last thing I want to say is this. Come in faith when you ask. Don't come, well, I'll try. No, no. Don't come saying, well, everyone's prayed for me, so I may as well give them a go. You've got to come in faith, believing. Otherwise, you are messing about with the Lord. If you're not in faith, you need to ask God further to give you revelation. You need to show him of your need to be empowered in this way. Right? You don't receive with doubt. You come expecting to receive. Galatians 3, 2 actually says that. Did you receive the Holy Spirit through works of the Lord? No. But by the hearing of faith. When you go to the, the, the bank with your checkbook, you don't go in so, and write a check, and, or perhaps some of you do, I don't know. You end up hoping that they're going to cash. Cash? Will they cash it? Won't they cash it? Most people go in and they know it's their right. They hand it over to the woman expecting to receive their money. And if there's a query, they say, what do you mean? It's qu- I've got enough money in the bank. And if she gets stroppy about it, you call the manager. You say, I want to see someone in charge around here. Now, isn't it funny? You go into a bank in perfect faith. I'll pray for you afterwards if this isn't you. You go into the bank in perfect faith, and yet apparently with God you don't. This says, all who ask, receive. Come forward, therefore, with an attitude, not to come and see what will happen, no, but rather to come and say, Lord, I ask you to baptize me with the Holy Spirit, Lord, thank you, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And you know the Lord will respond to that faith. Hallelujah. If you're thirsty, you come and drink. Praise God. There's water being offered. And you come and take your fill. Praise the Lord. Expect the peace. Expect the joy. Expect the love to flow. Expect the empowering. And expect the fruit to come. And the Lord won't disappoint you. Praise God. Let's pray, shall we? And then we're going to go on and we're going to pray for those who really want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And may I say there are people here who will give you further counsel if you need further counsel after this particular meeting. Now let's just pray, shall we? And I think it would be best if we start with the time of prayer. I trust that all of you who came into this meeting made sure that you were already in fellowship with the Lord so that there's no unforgiven sin around. But just in case you didn't, I'm going to give you an opportunity now. Just confess the sin to the Lord and receive his forgiveness.